This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Sheila Chandra was a founding guest on my podcast. It was an enormous honor to have her on back then. And it is an absolute honor to have her back after these three years. Her legacy in the world of diasporic South Asian slash world music, troublesome little label there, which we get into some deep discussions about, has been absolutely irreplaceable. And uh, I do fear that it falls prey to historic amnesia, which uh, she seems to be a lot more nonchalant about than I am, at least with regards to her own personal career. But this is me doing a little bit to make sure that doesn't quite manifest in the manner it has in other parts of history that comes with way darker sides than maybe controversial discussions on the history of diasporic music. The roots of art though, especially art like the Kanchila creates, comes uh, with so much hidden information about the world we live in, the changes we've been through and the ones we haven't. I'll just keep it at that. This podcast is about the reissue of an absolute classic, a piece of musical history that is um, irrefutably timeless in the way it sounds, irrefutably timeless in its sheer artistic quality and in integrity, and irrefutably relevant in its sociocultural implications. The journey of a 16-year-old British-Asian girl who basically changed the entire perception of a diasporic culture. Despite being caught in the crossfire of baggage that's the result of a colonial hangover and baggage that uh, has a shelf life, which uh, we still are constantly exposed to. Blatant racism. I, I probably make this entire conversation sound a lot heavier than it is. It isn't. The elegance with which Sheila has addressed these issues back in the day as an artist and today as an author, writer, an artist, coach and thinker is absolutely inspiring. So please don't let my introduction convince you otherwise. This is one of the most inspiring conversations you'll get to hear on my podcast. So um, I sincerely request you to stick around till the very, very end. It will be worth your time. Without much further ado, please welcome the one and only Sheila Chandra. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. And welcome Sheila, it is an absolute honour and pleasure to have you on back again. Lovely to speak to you again. We were actually warming up to this re-release of your music. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long has it been since the original release? I want to make sure I have an accurate... Well, roughly number. 30 years. 30 uh, We've Been Sister's Voices was 1992, The Zen Kiss was 94, and A Crane Drain was 96. So we're, we're sort of almost in the middle there of that 30-year. Uh, um, at the risk of sounding repetitive, I'm going to say something I actually said on our first encounter as well. I find it fascinating is not the right word, almost a little uh, shocking as to how relevant it still is to today's sidecars. It's like 
when I'm listening to your music, it's like nothing's changed. The social issues it addressed hasn't changed. It could be <laughs> it could have been a song released last week. I think the profile, certainly in in England, of um, of Asian artists has changed. I mean, um, when you think I was the only um, Asian artist in full working full time in any kind of fusion form in the eighties, Bhangra bands came up. Um, they were mostly semi-pro in the late eighties, but then they started playing these infamous daytime gigs and uh, and got bigger and bigger. So. By the 90s, there were some professional ones and the scene was starting to uh, burgeon. But actually now, I mean, it's so, so much bigger. So from that point of view, I think it's uh, improved. And I think certainly the the discussions around um, unconscious bias and racism have, have also moved on. I mean, in those mm. days, we were, you know, we were very much dealing with a sort of really crude bigotry kind of questions were the most pressing issues whereas you i mean with brexit you get some of that but not not nearly so much it was normalized wasn't it it was completely normal to just deal with racism every day yeah well, i think as we were discussing on the last podcast you know in the in the 70s uh brown face and outright racist portrayals of of mm. asian people were totally socially acceptable mm. so um you know there is a big discussion about that now um, and even uh, whitewashing Asian characters from novels and things and recasting them with well-known white Hollywood actors. Um, you know, at least that is a discussion. Whereas in the 80s and even in the early 90s, there was it, it, things were substantially different. Mm -hmm. I also think that sociologically, you know, I'm the older part of the second generation age-wise. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm at the older edge of Generation X as well. And um, Asian culture wasn't seen as uh, in, a, in, in a terribly positive light in the early 80s. It was starting to change by the early 90s, mm. but it was still very much sort of othered. Whereas I think now with, I mean, chicken tikka masala being voted sort of, you know, a favourite English dish and sort of actually a sort of typifying English cuisine. Um, I mean, that would have been unthinkable in the 90s. Interesting. And I and also think listening wise, there's a revolution because until you got um, chill out in the in the late 90s, Western audiences were not used to listening to uh, musics that were drone-based and they didn't actually know how to listen to uh, drone-based music. They didn't know that you were supposed to kind of listen 50% to the drone and then 50% to the melody on top and that the hmm. harmony was really in the in the changing intervals between the steady drone note and the note of the melody at any given time. Whereas now, that's an instinctive skill wow. that even pop audiences in the West have and they were their ears were kind of retrained by the late 90s but in the early 90s when the when the trilogy first came out that wasn't the case and I think um in a way having because the trilogy is solo voice and drone sometimes the drone sounded sometimes it's implied on the unaccompanied pieces and I think in a way listening to just a drone and a voice a single melodic line kind of was a warm-up for that because it enabled people to you know there's nothing else to get distracted by this is exceptionally fascinating for me to hear you knew that there wasn't going to be a big key change mm. <laughs> you knew that there, you know you knew that there wasn't be a set, going to be a set of chords under the under the chorus 
Mm-hmm. So you, you started to have to, it was a way of kind of educating listeners. That is exceptionally relevant to a lot of the work I'm currently doing, um, mm-hmm. which I don't want to hijack this conversation with right now, but so I'll circle back to this later on. Um, okay. But I'll also rewind a little bit to the sociocultural aspects of the music and its development, which you refer to. And I do want to make a note that, um, sure. Um, there is a lot of talk about the dark side of othering and racism generally. It's uh, it's like it's hard to get it's hard to have be at any social gathering without it coming up within the, the first fifteen minutes at this point. At least here in Berlin these days. Um, well, I think of your generation less so mine. Yeah, I, I can very well imagine. But um, one of the things I found very, very um, notable in our, during our conversation is your perspective on it has been acutely balanced. That balance between being so open and calling out the dark sides, but also being very observant about the other side to the story, the entire dynamic of it. Uh, I was actually listening back to something you said on our last uh, episode, wherein you did such an amazing job of weaving in how music plays a role in it even how world music became world music and I, i'm not going to come close to doing it as fantastic a job as you did in saying it but you used an analogy of how one brown person in a room of 100 white people is celebrated mm-hmm. and uh, the minute that one brown person turns into 20 people or 40 people and start demanding their rights the entire dynamic of it changes so it's not something celebrated anymore slowly the room starts getting uncomfortable mm-hmm. and uh, starts feeling uh, threatened mm. their culture starts feeling threatened and like the overall transformation or, or change that is mm. a natural result of the increasing numbers mm-hmm. uh, is something that results in an inherent ancient kind of conflict I find that an an incredibly nuanced and balanced uh, and sober perspective on things. Thank you. When was the first time you realized this? Because it would have been so easy for you to just go on a rant and just, you know, let your trauma do the talking for you. Instead, what was it that gave you that sense of balance to kind of see a bigger picture? I think if you're going to go on a rant, you're not going to get very far. Hmm. These forces do work against you and, you know, maybe if you're of an alternative sexuality, you can fly under the radar at times. Mm. An Asian face isn't something it's very easy to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't pass. And I think you've got to be intelligent about the way that you approach things, which means you've got to think about it and you've got to think about the other person's point of view. And this is this is one of the essences of privilege. Mm. Privilege is one of the one of the, the well, the first tenet of privilege is that the privileged group is is uh, unaware of their privilege. That is one of their privileges to be unaware of their privilege. Mm-hmm. And um, which, you know, I'm sure you know. But the second one is that because they're unaware of their privilege and the uneven playing field, the need to think about the differences between the disadvantaged group and the advantaged group falls on the disadvantaged group. So we have to do all the thinking. Hmm. We have to do all the theorising. We have to do all the analysing. We have to come up with organised ways of fighting back or even individual ways of fighting back if we're the only brown person in the room. So 
Yeah, that's why ranting is not actually going to get you very far. Um, what you see commonly with that educator, what is her name? The one who you, who did the brown eyes, uh, Jane Elliott, mm-hmm. the ra- anti-racism uh, activist Jane Elliott, who was a, a kindergarten teacher in the 50s in America, well, late 50s, early 60s, was uh, when Martin Luther King was shot, Junior was shot, she started um, conducting a, an educational experience where she divided children up between blue eyes and brown eyes, and she treated the blue-eyed children as uh, black Americans were being treated Mm-hmm. at that time so it was kind of in line with the with the civil rights movement and lots of videos on youtube where you can see her leading groups through this process it's quite an intense day-long process and what you typically get with with the brat with the blue-eyed people who are for the purposes of the exercise being discriminated against and and commonly blue-eyed i mean not always but commonly blue-eyed people in america are white mm-hmm. you get their absolute outrage and ranting yeah they do they do rat because it's the emotional force of that is hitting them for the first time yeah it's their trauma talking yeah and they're not used to having to be able having to sit back and be considered and work their way through it mm. i mean you say that i'm very balanced i'm sure you're very balanced about it too you know you have to be debatable <laughs> yeah you, you're <laughs> right you have to be i will agree on that at some point if you if you're in the thick of it long enough, if you're navigating multiple cultures, if you're navigating or even uh, navigating an environment that uh, is inherently multicultural, for lack of a better term, you have to be intelligent about it. It's only, you're only, you're one shot at any form of sanity. That's probably rude to say, but uh, yeah, honestly. Yeah. It's a protective measure for your mental health. I guess we get, try and be more... Uh, careful about the battles we choose also a a lot of our allies quote-unquote aren't always completely privy to the most updated politically correct language some of my allies will often say things which probably don't sound great and will offend the latest trend on what politically correct is but have been true allies but just you know are struggling to keep up with what is the appropriate thing to say on the continent. It is a lot to keep up with. Even I struggle to keep up sometimes. Well, and, and I think also it's not always a question of language, it's a question of uncovering layers because um, it's, a, it's a lifelong task for all of us, mm-hmm. particularly people who, um, if we talk about race, white people in that privileged group, for them to uncover the layers of thinking. Mm. Uh, which is more important than using the in word. It's more important than, exactly. than saying people of colour instead of BAME because BAME is now on its way out or, or whatever it is. You know, noticing that you centre yourself in a discussion, for instance, I think is much more important than getting the right form of words. So true. Noticing, uh, noticing that you're unconsciously othering or exoticizing. Noticing that you're fetishizing, yeah. noticing that you are downgrading someone's opinion slightly or questioning whether they are an expert mm. uh, because they're not part of a mainstream group. These, these sorts of things are, the language is important, representation is important, but covering, uncovering your own biases is also really, really important work. And the whole system is set up 
to to reinforce the status quo, which is a, a white supremacist status quo in Europe and America anyway. Mm-hmm. So true. And so what's happening is that we're kind of all rolling a big boulder uphill uh, and I include people of colour because, of course, we're getting it from the sort of internalised racism side. But people trying to undo their, the bias because of their privilege, don't forget that they're constantly getting that bias reinforced in mainstream media and the way their friends talk and the way their granny talks. And, you know, so it, it's kind of constantly trying to shed whilst the system is still slathering the stuff on. Bingo. It can be such a such a scapegoat oftentimes. Language is a skill, articulation is a skill, and our degrees of fluency with the same or our, um, how adept we are with using language to actually articulate our feelings is is a variable skill um, and it can be exploited i do notice it can be exploited to, for uh, darker measures too it, it is possible to figure out <laughs> a way to use it to shield agendas which you try and pass off as uh, the right thing to do it, it seems to be uh, yeah that, that seems like a newer problem i seem to be uh, associated with like uh, how do I say this right? Uh, I do come across a certain brand of person who will, who's just so impeccably trained in the manner they go, they navigate the language that there's no way you can actually pinpoint that there is something terribly off with what they're trying to get away with. <laughs> so there is out of this side which starts to be neat talked about. You know, we can't just make it about uh, uh, articulation, correct language. And there are a lot of people out there who really intend with all their hearts to be an ally and do their best to be the fair they, uh, the fairest they can and have no are completely lost uh, in in this skill that is supposed to be um, just taken for granted which is learning um, the right terminology especially now uh, i notice in central europe since this entire um, movement is becoming increasingly globalized one of the struggles because um, i am active here in a lot of um, for lack of a better term anti-racism or inclusion uh, movements here one of the biggest challenges we f- uh, face is the terminology is not even existent in a language like german for example so a lot of the times we end up adopting english terms and uh, that that can be tricky for a lot of people to handle because whether or not English at this point uh, belongs to English speakers or is the official planet Earth language, that is still is a whole different debate altogether. So there'll be people like, why do I have to use a foreign language in order to be anti-racist? You know, why, you know? And there's the paradox of the fact that the reason that, that English has become exactly. one of the reasons... <laughs> it's the, one of the crappiest reasons out there. ...is because English has, <laughs> England has invaded, sometimes not successfully, successfully but mostly successfully invaded so many countries on yeah the that is the bitterest irony of all but it's not the only reason if you want to take heart yes i agree one of the one of the other key reasons is that english are very bad at learning languages and it's much easier for um, native speakers of other languages to learn english is uh, leaving aside the the terrible kafka-esque grammar rules in some mm-hmm. places um, is the fact that um, English is actually, to the ear, is spoken in a, in a quite narrow bandwidth. Yes. Which, um, and as, as native English speakers, we get used to that narrow bandwidth. Mm-hmm. So then we meet a language like Dutch, which has an extremely wide bandwidth, and we 
just can't hear yeah. the sounds that would enable us to equally uh, to easily pick up language. Whereas the Dutch, that's why the Dutch are so great at many of them will speak two, three, four languages. Mm -hmm. And it's because they have this inherent advantage of when, when they were babies picking up on language, they, they had to grasp a much broader bandwidth. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, by the way. The, the psychoacoustic aspects to it are also something that are just about starting to get unpacked, really. I also mm -hmm. find, um, I speak four languages, well, four and a half, and I do notice German, for example. If you speak German correctly, you speak German well. It's really mathematical. So as long as you have the math in order, if your math is impeccable, your German's impeccable. End of. In English, that is like a disaster waiting to happen, you know. The more correct you try and sound, the more obvious it'll be that you have no clue. What well, I think the irony is that before 1066, we were invaded so many times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that our language is a hodgepodge of so many. But what it does, though, is it forces you to be more left brain and it forces you to just kind of really think for yourself and own the language, I think, with, English, with the language like English. And I think that's the reason it has become the global medium is it gives, it, uh, it both gives and also uh, forces and um, empowers people to own the language on their own terms as soon as possible. Well, we certainly have, over the centuries, gifted the world with a number of stellar creators, yes, yeah. in every medium. Which brings me to one of the first questions I did want to uh, ask you. This one was, uh, I came up with, mm -hmm. I have a few from the audience as well who sent in questions, but this one's mine. Okay. You tell me about uh, the first, your f very first release, and um, I'm, I'm quoting you roughly from what you said on our last episode. In the earlier Rough Guides, I was listed under Britain. That changed later on. Yeah. Um, I actually did a really whack job of addressing that question. Please accept my uh, apologies. But my question is, why did why did that change? I remember you also were very insistent and it was important to you that you were listed under Britain, which I can relate to. I couldn't insist with the rough guides. What I insisted was that Real World listed me as both England and India. Mm -hmm. One, they, they, they have like a, a little barcode of a rainbow set of colours. Yes which you'll find on every real world album. Uh -huh. And uh, if you look at the back of the album where the bar, where the bars of color continue, they will, um, they each represent the continents. And so they will put the country in the correct color bar for that country, uh, continent. So, you know, if they've got an artist from Liberia, they'll, they'll take the, the African continent color and put Liberia, right Liberia in there. Mm-hmm. So um, I insisted that they put both England and India, which is quite early on in there. I mean, I'm sure they do it commonly now, but because 92 was sort of only five years after their inception mm -hmm. um, or maybe less. Uh, so I insisted that I couldn't insist with the rough guides. I had no input into the rough guides, but the rough guides did originally list me. I think because it was quite a strong folk influence, uh, British folk influence, excuse me, on the real world trilogy which were the most current recordings when the rough, when the rough guides uh, were first getting big and when they, they listed me. Um, and I think the Asian scene became a bigger and bigger section. Huh. And then they started listing me in the Asian scene. And also I think it grew just, it grew beyond Bhangra and I was so obviously not Bhangra. Right. So uh, I think they had, they did have an Indian section, but they had a sort of Hindi film and a Bhangra 
emphasis in those early days. And so they put me in the British section because geographically I was from Britain and I had a strong British folk influence. Um, so it's purely commercial reasons then? I think it's sort of changing audience, uh, changing artistic demographic reasons. I think when you get the rise of Asian underground and you get that as a very strong representation of uh, of the Asian community, mm-hmm. then it makes more sense to put me in the same section as Nithin Sawney and Dalvin Singh at that time and Black Star Liner. And they were starting to win Mercury Prizes and Nithin Sawney signed to V2. And, you know, it was a, it became a different era. And it sounds as though we're on the, you know... Interest in Asian music has gone in huge cycles mm-hmm. when we've been very, very in or very, very out. And um, I think we're, com- we're possibly coming up to the wave, another wave where we're very in and possibly we are going to stay in because the size of the scene has grown. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I have a whole series here, so I'm going to go through these as soon as I can because I want to respect your time and make sure that your voice is well taken care of. How do you feel? Okay, this is here's a question from the audience. How do you feel about uh, at this point almost a fourth generation of artists, musicians coming out with Asian influences? I'm just quoting here, mm-hmm. who might not know about your legacy. Well, why should they? <laughs> It's fine. Um, I mean, you, you can make the decision to go and look at what's come before, but mm-hmm. um, not everyone who picks up a guitar and, and starts to write, you know, pensive songs knows about Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, um, to, to make music is an instinct, to make music out of the, the threads of culture that, that lie in your grasp and that have influenced you is, is an instinct. So... Um, yeah, I feel absolutely fine about it. There's absolutely no reason they should know anything about me. <laughs> that, that's very generous for you. And I expected an answer like that from you, knowing your work the way I do. Uh, if I may, permission to share some of my thoughts, though. You do, yeah. Go and ahead. I do. You remember how we caught Kristen Dior using your music without accrediting you? Yeah, that was a mistake. I mean, they had gone to Real World and asked for a license first. They had actually oh, right, okay. started yeah. to sign the paperwork and negotiate a price. Gotcha. So it, it wasn't that they were doing something illicit. It was simply that they'd forgotten to put the credits on. Oh, thank you for uh, letting me know. Let's see, I, I, I was, I did not know that. That that actually um, helps a lot. But it, that is the kind of thing uh, where I feel how how much can we do and how much of a responsibility do we have to make sure people know about the history of where this music comes from but that's me i think that's the that's the music professor in me who's just really adamant about <laughs> trying to educate well, people or whatever I, i think we're i think we're in a possibly we're in a transition phase i mean if i'm going to be optimistic and say that there's going to be a point where Asian music is able to get off the wheel of being terribly out of fashion and terribly in fashion mm-hmm. because it becomes a, a music that is no longer othered. So something like reggae, for instance, there's always a subgroup of people who are into it. It may not be, you know, at the top of the charts, but it's, neither is it considered, you know, like social death to be into reggae if you're not from the islands. So if Asian music is about to enter that era, I think we get beyond the sort of struggle phase. I, I think in the 90s, it was important for artists to know who had gone before and to know the history of the scene. In the 2000s, it was important. But I think as... As the scene grows and um, it just becomes about expressing yourself mm. and there isn't so much of a sort of loathe, loading in terms of 
representing your community, it actually becomes less important to know what's gone before. So, you know, I didn't have to know the whole history of R&B or the whole history of rock and roll to start singing in my bedroom, singing all the popular songs of the day, singing the songs that were that were virtuoso that from female divas that, that I just adored. Mm-hmm. I'd hear one song that they did, you know, like Chaka Khan. You know, I'd, I'd emulated Chaka Khan, but I didn't know about her history with the Black Panthers. I didn't know about her struggle. I didn't know how incredibly important she was. I liked her voice. And that was only my learning process. I went well beyond Chaka Khan and never officially referenced her in my music. Although people say, you know, where did you learn and who were you emulating as a child? Then, you know, she's she's one of them, or Aretha Franklin or, or whatever. Wow. That's because I was learning from a mainstream form of music. Mm. And if, if as Asian music starts to become mainstream, and, and I hope it is in terms of not being othered any longer, not being seen as an exotic or as a, as a music that uh, doesn't speak to the mainstream listener's heart, then uh, as a, a music that expresses what they feel, as opposed to being something interesting to listen to that's othered, then I think in a way that's just part of the growth of the music. I understand. Yeah, I think that just, again, speaks for the depth with which you've always approached the art. It just shows how inherently connected you are to the organic side of how, what music really means to human beings. I'm being a little broad here. Like, yeah, that is the right reason to really like music. You should vibe with it. And not because you've been told that here's a name you ought to really get into. I completely yes. agree with that. I do find though, uh, some um, there is a part of me which does feel slightly restless at the risk of um, the legacy just being bypassed. And you know, I guess what I'm referring to is cultural amnesia. That 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 is the part I do worry about. But that's just me. Yeah, I, yeah. I think there is a danger of that, and I and, I, and um, from what I see. Uh, in the scene itself, I think, unfortunately, misogyny and sexism operate to erase all the great female creators who've made, mm, you know, interesting. When, the, when our stories are being told, especially by uh, male members of the Asian scene, there is a tendency to forget, gloss over, omit the contribution of, of great women. Mm. And you know, that is something that I think we're still having to fight to make sure it's remembered in the history books for people who do want to go back to that history. I want to be careful commenting on that uh, as a man, but it, I do find that's one of the things, uh, one of the aspects I was referring to. It's like nothing's changed in 30 years. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that hasn't changed yet, no. Uh, and um, that brings me to another question. Have you ever asked yourself if you need a mentor? Because I'm pretty sure everyone, including me, does. If you struggle to navigate the nuances of your personal artistic goals with the lifestyle of a professional artist, you're not alone. The amount of self-doubt and rejection we deal with in a day is often more than what other professions are confronted with in years. I've been there. So I know. Well, you're starting out on your artistic journey, seeking growth, or just looking to deepen your artistic practice. Mentorship can be the key that unlocks those doors to your potential. I've witnessed the transformative impact of mentorship firsthand on my own artistic journey. My mentors have completely changed my life. And it's time for me to return the gesture. I combine my 20 plus years experience as a professional performing artist and educator 
With my more recent explorations as a certified personal trainer and psychotherapist to offer fellow artists what I call 360-degree mentorship. Not just music lessons, but healthy approaches to artist development, self-care, resilience and clarity in mindsets. Relationship building and unpacking limited beliefs to clear up those myths and get the kind of reality check that will shock you with revelations on how much more you're capable of. My mentorship methodologies are designed to give you the tools, guidance and support to define success on your own terms. But don't take my word for it. Go check out www.holisticmusicianacademy.com and read through what the artists I've been working with have to say. Hit me up on www.holisticmusicianacademy.com I found interesting from the audience. I'm going to rephrase a little... Because I think there is this assumption that because um, Asian first first and second generation Asian women particularly, mm-hmm. you know, were uh, they were kind of under even more traditional manners than 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 uh, mm-hmm. da- daughters back in India because you know there was this whole stigma with kind of being a diaspora community and being mm-hmm. seen to be proper and being seen to be respectable and it was you you could look at the history books see an omission of Asian women in that um, uh, musical history in the UK and say, oh, well, obviously it's because they, they, did, they didn't have the freedom to do that. But actually, that is a, a, it's a great shame um, to, um, to, to omit the contribution of people who, of women who had to fight extra hard exactly. and made extra sacrifices yeah. to make those musical contributions very, very early on. Yeah. And and that's, you know, so it's even more important because otherwise I think historians, uh, musical historians would look back and say, well, of course they're not there. They couldn't be there. But that's, then kind of leave it at that. Yeah, I can really connect to that. I can really relate. Not not, not as a man, obviously, but I, um, just to share some, some of what where I'm coming from. My mother is one of the most successful mm, academics mm. slash doctors that ever were in India. And I, I find it extremely triggering when, uh, and th- this was a whole different time, you know, she was probably one of the very few um, people in her time um, working at the level she was. I find it extremely triggering when people, even of South Asian origin, just tend to bypass that, dismiss that in the name of, broadly speaking, our culture and yeah, this is the way it has been. Really? That's not what I grew up around. Mm. You know, you haven't met my mum, And I, I, I've, I tend to take that personally sometimes. And yeah, she's not an artist, but I've seen the exact same pattern repeat itself in different branches. I mean, it's yeah. women who've been way futuristic, doing way more than people even think they were capable of or, or, or give them half of the credit they deserve. Mm. Quite triggering. Here is a question which is very intricately related. You were 16 when you were at the charts. You were also a South Asian, uh, excuse me, British Asian girl, really. At 16, you were a girl who was also caught in the crossfire between uh, these uh, cultural standards you were supposed to represent uh, for your community uh, while constantly being uh, othered by homegrown South Asians as well. It was an extremely complex position to occupy. And all of Mm -hmm. this at 16... Mm-hmm. How did how does one handle this at sixteen, especially in that specific cultural milieu? I think, as I said at the time, it was like a a very extreme roller coaster ride. You just had to hang on for dear life and hope that you were making the right decisions. Um, I, I said then um, that you know I was extremely aware of the importance of representing my community as well as I could, mm-hmm. and so I 
you know, don't. I mean, you're you're an Asian, so I I talk about it with you. It's not something I've generally talked about in in the mainstream, but. <clears throat> Even these days, to be mixed race is to um, be othered by your community. Um, and I had to put any feelings I had about the criticisms uh, or the lack of acceptance coming my way, um, and especially going to the arts as well, another set of criticisms. Um, I had to put all that aside because I knew it was more important. My feelings weren't as important as a positive representation of our community in the 80s. That's a big burden for a 16-year-old to carry, though, don't you think? Well, I, it was a question. I mean, there was some self-interest in it because, you know, by the host community, I was perceived in the same othering way. Gotcha. I, I had the same mm. um, racist views being um, pushed at me. And I think okay. when you were from that generation, when you were from that second generation in those days, there was this, I mean, we were both implicitly and explicitly constantly told um, do not give them a chance to criticise us. Yeah. Never, never give them an excuse to criticise us because they will, even in unfair ways. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the hangovers of people like me who grew up at that time um, is not always obviously, but often is a sort of um, patholo- pathological need to to be... Uh, uh, the model immigrant? Yeah, the model immigrants, sort of perfectionist syndrome. Mm-hmm. It is very, because we were not, uh, in our teenage years, for instance, we were not allowed to go out and make mistakes. Yeah. Partly because it was very unsafe, uh, physically very unsafe. Uh, partly because, you know, we would shame our communities and partly because we were coming from a, a culture where um the teenage years and the sense of teenage rebellions simply did not exist as a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in, in a way, not living through those years and not learning to make mistakes and not being allowed to make mistakes and, and do stupid things and kind of just let go a bit uh, was a huge disadvantage. Yeah. And, and you know, so you're saying that's a lot to put on a 16-year-old, but in a way that was kind of just another layer of, what was being put on a 16-year-old of that generation in the UK anyway. Wow, boom. And it has changed. I think it changed quite quickly for boys, less so for girls. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, you know, in a way it was all of a piece. Hit the ball out of the park, uh, like Americans say. I use a lot of American (laughs) references these days, sorry. Um, When you say, uh, yeah, it was something you were dealing with anyways. I actually had never really thought about that because... I grew, I grew up with these stories about how, because um, I, I left the UK when I was six um, and I would keep in touch with my friends in, in London, of course, for the next decade where I was spending more time in Asia. I'd hear about how much more conservative their upbringing was going in comparison to mine. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and yes. the restrictions, like my fr- I had 21-year-old friends who were still not being allowed to date or even go to central London for a weekend out. On a Saturday. Oh, no, of course, completely unheard of. I mean, it was more like the 1920s or the 1930s. Yeah. 
in the 80s and 90s for Asian, because we were, and, and the thing was, it wasn't going to make any difference because we were going to be looked down on anyway by uh, India. Yeah. We're being looked down on musically, as we discussed last time. Uh, but, you know, we're going to be looked down on socially because we were around all those horrible Western influences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, gleefully picking them up in Asia and, and, um, and looking down on us for being surrounded by them in, in the UK. Yeah, that, that's a great point to ask you another question from uh, a live audience member, which is, have you been observing what's been going on in India currently? Is that interesting for you? And what do you No, I'm sorry. I'm really, really bad at okay. watching Indian politics. I think because I, I never, <laughs> I think I never got into it as a child. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know who all the players are and I don't know what the... Um, I don't know what the score is. I, I think uh, I think this person was referring to uh, the music, the, the arts, I think, the music coming out of India. I am not conversant with music of any genre um, these days because, because it is so, sometimes physically, but obviously psychologically quite painful for me to listen. I understand. Okay. So, I, don't, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you who's in the charts here. Mm -hmm. And I certainly can't tell you who's in the charts in India. I'm asking because, again, I'm guessing um, there are a lot of people, in, especially in the Indian independent music circles, mm -hmm. are acutely aware of uh, your contribution. Are they? Yeah, I, I, I would say so. Goodness. In, indeed. I would like to think, I think like later generations, even I'm including a generation after me, I don't think the this this boundary between diasporic and homegrown indians i think the past decade has shattered a lot of it brilliant yeah for one uh, yeah i mean i was talking about the 90s of course absolutely late, late 90s like your music being used for a christian dior reel right and so you have like i don't know a few thousand gen x millennials listening to this i mean it is timeless and uh, for all you know they they might they might just think yeah, you're from India. Yeah. So many lines are being blurred. That's the power of social media, isn't it? It's it's a world culture. And for what it's worth, the one positive side of this Spotify shit show is that if we do live in a post-genre world, like genres don't really exist um, the way they used to. Mm. I'm trying to see how I can make more sense of this question. I guess what they're trying to ask is: Is this? I guess what they're asking is. Okay, okay, they're adding. Um, do you uh, uh, do you have any artists you like in the Indian independent uh, music? I'm sure if I listened to some, I would, I would, but I don't. I'm sorry, I can't. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm a little distracted. I have like three screens here. Some of them. Like, no, that's all right. That's when you're the host. That's all. That's yeah, your. Uh, that's one reason I, I try and convince my guests to keep video off because I look like a total moron on screen, keeping up with all my screens. Actually, I think it's it's more reassuring than you know because yeah. if someone appears to get very sort of flaky and not say anything for two minutes, if you can see their eyes moving across the screen, you know it's because they're looking something up. Interesting. So you know what's happening. So it's actually more reassuring because, you know, well, they're just processing. That's fine. It's not because you've said something completely outré. Okay, thank you. I had actually never really thought about it that way. Thank you for bringing my notice to that. Here's a question. Mm -hmm. Quote, unquote, I'm quoting you. I'm one of the few artists who experienced putting out music that would now be called world music before the category existed. Mm-hmm. Um, one, how do you feel about the category in 2023? 
to, is this something you'd realized? I know I've actually asked you this question, so I'm trying to give it a, like an upgrade now. Do you think being in that position where you were, technically speaking, the first world music artist added a specific dimension to the music? Um, no, in the sense that, of course, something that exists five years before a term exists means you can't be aware of it as a, as a dynamic. Mm -hmm. I didn't do the songwriting for Monsoon and Monsoon came out of the founder member Steve Coe's love of the golden era of Hindi film music as I think I've said to you so it was just about expressing his joy at that music particularly the construction of that music as it was based on Indian classical and, and folk mm -hmm. um, so uh, no it didn't influence me I think it, the influence went the other way because as I explained to you, it was a magical time in which Monsoon's single ever, hit single, global hit single, Ever So Lonely, was racked alongside rock and pop in physical shops. You know, exactly. that was physical. Oh. Media was the only way for us to get our music. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted Ever So Lonely, you, 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 you found it in the, in the rock and pop section. And there were no, you know, it's played on Radio 1, it's played on all the mainstream shows because there was no alternative show or alternative chart for it to be to be um, uh, listed in. It was presented as, for, for, the, for the purposes of, of, the, um, of the white community, as our music, pop music. Mm -hmm. And I think the other advantage was that uh, there was no video and obviously when a, a single is breaking in the clubs, which is where it broke, broke in the gay clubs first you've no idea who's playing it. So, although I've obviously had a very Indian influence in the instrumentation and, and in the writing, ever since it is written on the Raga Jog, which is a five, but that is also a five-note pentatonic scale that's commonly used in British folk music. Mm -hmm. It's used in music, the pentatonic scale is used in music all around the world. Mm -hmm. But uh, at first it would clear the floor because tabla rhythm was not something, it was a very danceable rhythm with a lot of lovely bio pattern in it with a crash, crash beat on top, crash beats were incredibly trendy that year. But you were not aware that it wasn't just sort of five white guys playing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it was just simply the sound of the record and it was being played in mainstream clubs or, in well, to start with in gay clubs. And at first it would clear the floor until people got how to dance to it, till they got how to relate to more the crash beat than the tabla rhythm and then started getting into the tabla rhythm and then it would pack the floor, consistently would pack the floor. How much do you think the production ethic had to do with it? And I'm also referring to the actual audio quality because I remember a lot of the Indian Bollywood soundtracks come out the other day did have a different fidelity thing happening. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for that was, you know, because uh, Steve Coe, who founded Monsoon, uh, went and took a trip to the Hindi film music studios in in bombay in 82 i think <laughs> and was and got to, to got to speak to all the um all the people you know being an englishman in a panama hat you know he's kind of he was other there but in a good way he was kind of shown around and got to meet some of them and um he his producer's ear, you know, he picked, he, he, he asked questions and he picked up upon the fact that in the fifties, in the forties and fifties and sixties, when in the, the Hindi film music sound was really, uh, you know, uh, its classic sound was, was, was formulated. It was at a time when a lot of people could only hear Hindi film music on the radio. Mm -hmm. 
And you've got those tiny, you've got those transistors, you've got those tiny speakers. And if you mm. want a sound to punch through, it's actually got to be very trebly. And you've got that quite, it's not exactly strident, but the, the sort of almost squeezed sound of female vocal that you don't get in classical music, but you do wow. get in that, that Bollywood style vocal. Mm, Where as a singer, I could describe it to you, but it probably wouldn't make a lot of sense to your listeners. But, you know, it, it is almost an extra nasal frequency, a top spin huh. that those, those singers put on that sound because it needed to punch through. The melody needed to punch through those tiny, teeny little speakers wow. that people around India were listening to them on. I never thought about that. I never, I'm so, I mean, if you're going to hear classical music, you go and hear it live. You know, you hear yeah. all the bass frequencies. And mm. then you've also got to add the fact in that recording equipment around the world, even state-of-the-art recording equipment in, this, in the um, uh, 50s and 60s, was really very primitive. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, you only got the invention of the, the microphone for singers in the 20s and 30s, which is when you start to get crooning as a star. Before that, everybody had to belt like Ethel Merman because they had to be heard throughout the theatre. Mm-hmm. I think less so for Indian classical music because, you know, generally sung in more resinous temples. But you think about the sort of uh, uh, um, upholstered theatre spaces that most Western singers are singing in, mm-hmm. and you've actually got to... To ha- employ a certain technique, which means you cannot just croon into the mic. What what we call pop vocal now is actually still crooning in term in technical terms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you can see this with with the with the with the Beatles because um, when the Beatles recorded Sitar. Uh, on all their sort of psychedelic Sergeant Peppers, like 67, 68 type, and, and the George Harrison recordings up until 1970 and 71. The sound is actually very twangy. Yeah. It's actually quite tinny. Yeah. It's unnuanced. Yes. Um, you don't really hear the sympathetic strings as much as you should. You don't hear the full, I mean, you think of the full bodied sound you get from the bass chord of the Surbaha. Mm. You don't really get that. Um, and that's because you've got all these electrified Western instruments. You've got electric guitar, you've got bass guitar, you've got drums and stuff. You, again, you're having to try and punch that sitar sound so it doesn't get lost on a pop single. And it just simply does not have the capacity to convey the sound. Fast forward to the early 80s and you've got monsoon SSL desks, had, you know, with the flying faders and computer mixes were just coming in. You've just had mm. since come in. Um, but, you know, microphones, valve microphones, um, music production um, was so much more sophisticated in terms of actually capturing an acoustic sound. Now, of course, it's all about um, auto-tuning and, and all the sort of filters and stuff you can you mm-hmm. can add in, in the mix stage. But in terms of capturing the actual basic raw sound in its fullest form, that was where the big leap forward had happened. Amazing. So suddenly you can you can get see you couldn't you couldn't record ever so lonely technically you couldn't record ever so lonely even if you had the whole song and all the parts ready you couldn't have recorded it in sixty nine because you couldn't have got that insistent buyer rhythm mm. competing against the crash bit you just couldn't you couldn't do it and the effect on the dance floor would not have been the same wow so yeah I think I think technically there there was this huge so it was of its time because. I was the first edge of the uh, of the second generation, 
We mm-hmm. thought differently. We thought differently about music. We thought differently about culture. We were criticised for it. There, there it was. It was obvious that there was going to be some sort of fusion flowering. Um, but also, it was of its time because the technology had finally caught up. Gold nuggets. What that is ex- exceptionally uh, interesting for me, especially as a music producer. To uh, like, you just made so many things just fall into place and just explain so many things I've been uh, ra- trying to wrap my head around for a while now. Um, and, and so, as I think I said to you, you, you get this moment in Never So Lonely where you, you've been lulled along with this crash beat and piano and gu- bass guitar and everything, pounding away on the melody um, and, you know, providing a, um, the bass guitar, providing a, a rhythm and all that. You think, oh, yeah, these are all elements I know and I love. And I, you're just Joe Bloggs dancing on, the, on a, you know, in a gay club or a straight club. You've never seen Monsoon. You don't know what this is about. It's an interesting melody. You're dancing, you're dancing, you're dancing. You get to those. You know what happens in a, in a 12-inch. Everything breaks down. Mm-hmm. It's the breakout, right? You start pulling instruments out of the mix. You get it down so that you can then do an interesting instrumental or some rhythmic effect or something. You 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 kind of you break it all down and then you build it all back up for the final final choruses. You know that. Mm-hmm. So what so what did Steve do? He he <coughs> excuse me, he pulled out everything except the sitar and the tabla. Yeah. I remember. And the uh there was a kabasa beat and then there was a, a bit of a jaws heartbeat. Uh, uh, Jaws harp pattern, and um, and then uh, he brings in the Chinese gong towards the second half of the of the instrumental. But you've had suddenly had the rug pulled out from you. You dance to this great track, and you know how to dance to it. And then suddenly you're dancing to an inner classical raga. Yeah, it is mind boggling. <laughs> you don't see it coming because there was no circuit such category as world music. That was absolutely radical. Mm-hmm. And as I think I, I, I said to you at the time. Because the Beatles had been in 10, hour, 10 years before, more than 10 years, and then, of course, the wheel turned and Asian music was out. Acoustic music was dead. We were all into synths. We were all into craft work. This is where the cutting edge was. Mm. And then Mon- Monson comes along with this incredibly um, acoustic sound, but also all the previous 10 years, 10 to 20 years of racist eviction in the media where Asians got nothing to contribute, there um, uh, there are problems with integration and racism and all that. It's all a big problem. What are we going to do these people? That was this kind of current script under a lot of mainstream documentary makers, um, uh, you know, uh, agendas when they were producing. Uh, and, you know, in terms of fashion and culture, we're absolutely nowhere. Suddenly you... There's this South South Asian, first South Asian woman on top of the pop, 16 years old, wearing a sari and a tilak. We cannot be portrayed in the same way anymore. Wow. It's not ideal, but, you know, we cannot, we can no longer be portrayed as a social problem. We can no longer be portrayed as terminally uncool. Wow. That is huge. That, that was, that was the point. And I think for the, for... Uh, lovely. When, when the Monsoon album, Third Eye, was re-released in tw- November 2022, Cherry Red did an amazing reissue deluxe version with all the B-sides and the two two tracks that never made it onto the album, which nobody have ever heard before. And the closest thing you'll hear to Monsoon being uh, Monsoon live, because we, we only ever did one gig as an excuse to rehearse together, really. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we did a radio session for Capital Radio in March of 83. So it's the closest thing you'll hear to Monsoon. But in the four, those four tracks, I dug them out of the attic and, and we transferred them in, and got them on, you know, in a dub version and a Hindi version. And, you know, all the versions are on there. And The Guardian wrote, a, wrote an article about... The um, 
you know, the cultural impact and of 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 monsoon at that time and uh people like bobby friction who is sort of listeners who are not in the uk he's sort of one of the chief djs at the bbc asian network mm-hmm. huge dj huge shows um and he was talking about how he was six or seven years old whenever slowly came on top of the pops in in wow. april 82 and you know that he he very kindly he was saying you know I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, kind of opened his eyes. It changed his world. Yeah, I can imagine. Because all the things about Indian culture that his parents had been banging on about, and, of course, when you're six or seven, you think they know nothing, Mm. and you want to be listening to what your friends are listening to, you know, and suddenly he could see it. And that's why that moment of representation was was so important. So, in a way, it had nothing to do with world music, but but it, and I think a lot of people in the music business who subsequently went on to form world music labels sat up and took notice and went oh this could work Mm. there is a market for this it isn't just amongst it isn't just sort of semi-professionals playing with tiny labels people who buy stuff in their own communities mainstream audience could be um interested in this and i think womad who had their first festival in in 1982 were were in on that you know they they picked up on that Mm. um you know we, well, they were already organised before Monsoon had a hit, so, you know, it was around the same time. But that's why I can't say I was influenced by world music. I think the influence went the other way. Oh, wow. That's that's just so huge. Um, just to check in, Sheila, how, how is your voice doing? I'm okay. I need to go and get some water if you will. Sure, absolutely. I'll wait. Still have a bunch of questions here. Okay. The relevance of this reissue. Why do you think? Um, okay, I'm just channeling the audience now. Um, why do you think this record was re-released? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have more than just a hunch. You actually have the facts on it. I guess they're wondering um, why this reissue happened. What was the motivation behind it? How did this whole thing come about? Well. I went to Cherry Red in, in spring of 2021 and suggested they reissue uh, the Monsoon album for the 40th anniversary, which was 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and a little, a nice little side note. Um, the by coincidence, the BBC didn't know we were doing this, but it was the it was the hundredth anniversary of the BBC in 2022. Wow! And they they curated a hundred objects, the history of the BBC in a hundred objects exhibition, mm-hmm. which they put on in a I think in a museum in in Leeds. But they had a whole you know could look it up on the web. There was a web page feature on each object prized object that represented that year in the bbc mm-hmm. and the object that they chose for 1982 was a signed se- uh, seven inch copy of ever so lonely no way that is awesome yeah it was amazing and they referenced the fact that i was the first asian, first asian woman on top of the pops which of course is the bbc the bbc flag- flagship chart show mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think it was important in a way an important moment for them. I mean, if one can be said to be important to the BBC, which of course one can't, but um, because it it was a precursor to uh, the BBC Asian Network. Mm. So you know, and all that programming now. So um, yeah, so it, it changed the landscape in that way. Um, coming back to the reissues, <clears throat> the real world reissues. I um, uh, uh, I, I went to Real World and said. 
how about re- re- reissuing these for the 30th anniversary? Mm. And, um, you know, I think in terms of production, they still stand up because, uh, you know, as I was explaining to you the last time we spoke. Oh, yeah. Um, from a studio point of view, at that time in the mainstream music business, nobody had heard a, a producer concentrate on a single vocal line for 16 hours. You know, normally, as you know, you run out of time when you're doing the mix and the vocal gets an hour on the end because that's you, you've been kicked out of the studio, which mm-hmm. is madness because what are people listening to? Well, they're listening to the vocal. But equally, in, in sound production terms, you have to start with, you know, you have to start with the rhythm and then you have to go on to the, the bass uh, frequencies and then you, and you work your way up through the instruments and then the voice is the cherry on top. So would you wait for the entire session for your vocal take? We had the drones pre-mixed. The, the drones had already had extensive work done on them, so we didn't have to work on the drones. Okay. As you know, with that trilogy, um, there is only ever a, a single melodic line being sung at any one time. So, all mm. you you know, you, you've got song verse chorus. I mean, it never works completely like this, but, you know, say you've got song, which is verse chorus, verse chorus, or a series of verses, verse A, verse B, verse C, take something like the enchantment which has a drone which was pre-mixed mm. so all you've got is that one voice singing the melody of verse a verse b verse c verse d so to to spend 16 hours chasing every little line putting a little bit of spin on just the end of that phrase just um you know putting a little delay on that phrase wow we particularly uh um well i say we it was steve um <laughs> You know, he particularly stretched his wings, production wings, on the four speaking in tongues pieces, which are on the Zenkiss and Weaving Manchester voices. Mm-hmm. Speaking in tongues, one, two, three, and four. Um, sampler, I think I said to you before, samplers um, were just coming in, and my my work had been sampled, um, which I, I didn't like because at the time, in legal terms, the mu- music business was a bit of a, of a wild west, and people were doing that without permission. And assuming that because I was an Asian artist, I wouldn't know my rights and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And we knew that any solo voice album, I mean, you're putting beautifully crafted, unaccompanied voice out there into the music business world. It's going to get sampled. Mm. Um, so, uh, but on the other hand, there was a reverse psychology with that because um, I had never played live. I never played live with Monsoon except for that one gig I spoke about earlier. Uh, I never played live as a solo artist, and the the rumor had gone around the music business that I could not sing, and this was the reason I had never played live. In fact, the reason I'd never played live was because I didn't want to sing the same song for you know six months at a time. Huh. I wanted that time in the studio to write sixteen songs. Wow. I wanted to grow, uh, you know, in this sweet shop of a, an Asian fusion field which wow. had never properly been explored before, uh, apart from those early experiments with Shakti and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So that was my reasoning. But the, work, the, the, the rumor went round the music business rather unkindly <laughs> that I couldn't sing. That is unkind. That's not just unkind. That, that's, that's rude. That's, uh, that's pretty messed up. Well, I think at the time there was also a little bit of resentment of Monsoon. At first, the Asian community was, was delighted that, you know, there's been this Asian woman on top of the pops. But as the Bhangra bands came up and they weren't getting mainstream attention, they were in a kind of parallel world of of Asian labels who operated in a completely different manner and whose sales weren't counted towards the charts because they sold a different wholesale price, which was not high enough for them to be counted towards the charts. And also they didn't sell through mainstream shops from which there was a, a Gallup poll 
uh, at Gallup Chart being, you had to, there were, there were 200 chart shops up and down the country mm-hmm. who used to send in their chart returns of sales. And they were a sample which was extra- from which was extrapolated how many singles were sold, how many. And that's how the charts were compiled. And none of the Asian shops were linked into that system. And I, and I think there was a resentment of, oh, Monsoon did it, but, you know, then they weren't Punjabi. They, they were sort of not involved in the community. They're not doing gigs. They're not doing these daytime gigs. We're doing all this work and we kind of resent it. Mm. And but I think somebody in that camp probably started this rumour that I couldn't sing. Anyway, so... We were going to put Weaving My Ancestors, because the reason I wrote that solo voice material, as I said to you last time we spoke, was because I wanted to play live and I didn't want instruments to get in the way and I didn't want the logistics of touring to get in the way and I wanted to learn about stagecraft. So I had this idea I'd go on stage alone. So I had to write solo voice and drone material in order to be able to go on stage alone. And the idea was that I would do my first set of performances with WOMAD so that I could learn in a fairly supportive environment because they had festivals all over the world. Mm-hmm. And that I would, at the same time, put an album of the live material out with Real World. And he knew the album would go out in the, I think it went out in February or very early March of 92. And then my first my first WOMAD performances were sort of mid-May. Mm-hmm. People would have heard the album. They would, you know, they would have had a time to assess the album, review the album, all that sort of stuff. And um, so we thought, okay, let's play into this. So we, uh, I wrote these four vocal percussion pieces, deliberately breaking up all the time cycles. As you know, you've heard the pieces, deliberately breaking up all the time, all the time cycles, making it sound as though these were bits of rhythms that have been stuck together in a sampler. Deliberately making it sound like that. No time cycle. That's so futuristic. Just, just vault fast changes, and Steve really went to town on the production. Mm. I mean, you know, like we're talking, and nobody again, nobody had heard Gunnicol like this, mm. treated like this before, because you, if you had a traditional um, uh, Conical artist you'd have them insisting on keeping to the time cycle because the mm-hmm. the, the art of, of traditional conical is to count the time cycle, go off and do these all these improvisations and then come back on the sum, which is first beat of the bar. And that's the mathematics of it. Yeah, it's tricky structured. It is very tricky structurally. Um, and, um, and we said, no, let's just treat this like a sound collage. And then, you know, he would line up... Uh, <laughs> In the stereo spectrum, he would line up six delays, which got more and more delayed as he went out out in the pan towards the extreme. And we we put that on there like for two phrases, and then we and then we changed to a huge reverb while I did some whispered kind of cult, which again you never hear you'd ne- you'd never hear on a record at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just using it like a, a sort of emotional sound collage effect, sounding totally and utterly crazy and illogical and drummers at the time absolutely hated it but there was another there was another example of you know like if you're going to spend you've got to spend 16 hours concentrating on the voice if you're going to if you're going to do different effect every five phrases or every two phrases or or just an effect over here like something do you you know what i mean yeah absolutely there was that level of um there was that level of of uh focus and there was the space in the spectrum. Your frequencies aren't being covered up by mm. a bass drum, by a bass guitar, by a rhythm guitar. Mm. People can actually hear the the envelope that yeah. you're shaping around the sound. 
which is always such a struggle for vocalists, isn't it? They're always fighting for their space. It's like... They fight, yeah, they're fighting to inhabit a little bit of the spectrum they're allowed. And, you know, it, we know this. If you if you isolate Paul McCartney vocals um, or uh, Mariah Carey vocals or Madonna vocals, you isolate them and suddenly you hear these amazing performances. And that's become more prevalent now on social media, but 30 years ago that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, coming to the end of the story, as I think I mentioned last time, I would walk on stage completely alone and everybody would think, oh, can she really sing? And I would start with one of the speaking in tongues pieces. And, and of course, having heard it, they're all like, yeah, well, that's sample. That's, that's typical Sheila. It's loads of studio trickery. That's sample. Really? There's no that- way she's going to be able to do that live. And I'd walk on stage and start with one. And, and the front of house sound engineer was, was, you know, clued up. He'd listened to all the recordings and knew where to put in various, de- I mean, it wasn't, obviously wasn't as sophisticated as the actual recording. Mm-hmm. But in a way that just went to prove, no, this is not recording. This is her doing it live. Wow. Who do you think your, tar- your target audience is going to be with this reissue? All this history being spoken of now. No, it's interesting. Um, you know, I did discuss it with Real World. They're... Their emphasis, I think, is on um, helping a new generation. Uh, I mean, certainly they have the audience for that to get to those people, a new generation of world music listeners who are a bit younger maybe, mm-hmm. uh, who weren't around, well, who weren't serious music fans 30 years ago, um, helping them rediscover this music and to kind of trace an, um, a production and uh, music history line back from because, you know, they were, even at the time, they didn't sound like anything else. So there's the joy of discovery. But I think because they're also being released, they were out on the 16th, by the way, 16th of June. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're being released on um, uh, coloured vinyl uh, and CD, as well as available di- digitally, there's that older collector cohort yeah. who really into vinyl. Yeah. Um, Real World have done an amazing job with the packaging. Yeah, I noticed. They've got new sleeve notes. It's just absolutely gorgeous what they've put together. is an inner sleeve and the colour vinyl is gorgeous. The sound quality is comparable to black vinyl and they've mastered it beautifully. So, um, you know, just as I, I know of people who are just buying them as coll- uh, collector's objects who don't even have a turntable, but, you know, because this sort of big format album sleeve, something physical you're holding in your hand. There's something very special about that. And then, of course, there's the warmth of of um, the vinyl. And in a way, when I was making them, my ears were t- tuned into that because my previous five solo albums had been for uh, five solo albums had been on vinyl and the Monsoon album before that. So in the studio, I was kind of tuned into that kind of sound. And we used um, we used a Sennheiser valve mic, old old school. Oh, I love those. Beautiful, beautiful, warm sound. Mm. It's, you know, with the gold capsule, just, I, 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 I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember the, the uh, model number now, but uh, it was just a, it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous object, you know, to sit, stand in front of and, and sing into. Yeah. Uh, those, those are the ex- exactly the kind of noises you want to hear captured on vinyl, isn't it? Actually, it wasn't. It was a Neumann. Oh, Neumann. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that's exactly what you want to hear. You want to hear the ends of those notes. You want to hear almost the the hiss in the note above the singer's head. You know, that silvery, silvery sound. That's that's what you want to hear. And so, you, in a way, you, you kind of get that back with the vinyl. Yeah. And uh, out on the 28th was the first track of a, of a, a digital compilation of companion listening. 
mm. called Out in the Real World. It's digital only, unfortunately, but um, it's um, there'll be some tracks being released right up to the time when the full album is released on the, I think it's the 14th or the 18th of August. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Friday the 18th of August. There's a, a new remix of Ever Slowly Eyes Ocean on there. Um, there's um, an off-the-desk, on-the-day version of The Power of Prayer, which is Rupert Heintrack from the first, the 1991 Real World Recording Week, mm-hmm. where I just got off the plane from Kazakhstan and my voice was all sort of like dehydrated and they stuck me in front of an eye and said, can you, wow. can you do something? And, uh, you know, it was one take wonder and it became the, that melody became the inspiration for, that inspiration, that, improvisation so it became the inspiration for coffee noir on the zen kiss so it's it's interesting to hear it, like it's, it's kind of a quintessential demo vo- vocal that's influenced something else and um there's a, a demo version of ocean which is one of the tracks off weaving manchester's voices which nobody has ever heard mm-hmm. um and there's various sort of collaborations and stuff that haven't been available um uh, before in digital format so it's kind of collection of companion listening from that era Brilliant. of me at Real World, which is why it's called Out in the Real World. Brilliant. I'm going to make sure all links to these issues will be included on the episode notes. Thank you. We're into the last three minutes. Sheila, you've been doing fantastic, by the way. That's <laughs> almost 90 I've minutes. I've allowed the time. That's okay. Thank <clears> you. Uh, I, uh, my apologies to some of the audiences. I won't be able to take all questions anymore, so I'm going to be a little picky now. Why don't you have a little browse through and see which are the ones you think are... Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do here. Um, let's see. Not sh- okay, I'm going to go with... Your words on advice. Uh, your words of advice to younger artists who might be going through uh, similar experiences and what you went through. What would you have done differently? What would you advise them to do differently? If they're like, uh, actually, this is I find this very interesting too. Some of the students I work with, clients uh, are women in their early twenties uh, who've had yeah. some of whom have had massive debuts, and I'm quite lost as to how to take that career forward especially in the current side guys um i mean that that could be a whole podcast episode on its own but from your personal experiences if there is the one essential thing you would tell them to never lose sight of what would that be gosh that's such a hard question it's a hard question because i uh, as you know i coach artists from around the world and uh, yeah. for me i can't give one piece of advice because it's a very one-to-one process I like that and answer. quite often someone Come to, come to me with a surface problem and say, I can't get further than this, I can't get an agent or I can't get the attention of a label or whatever it is that they're doing. And then we dig back down and actually it's it's a more of a foundational problem. Oh, I'm so with you there. I'm absolutely same same camp. I agree. You, you know, it's a, it's a cultural mismatch in terms of um, understanding how the culture of the arts works or uh it sometimes it can be a like a, a belief mismatch in what a belief in themselves mismatch or oh, yeah. uh, it can be a practical approach mismatch or it can be someone they're struggling something they're struggling with like uh, organization or adhd or something like that so you know I yeah i mean there are as many answers as there are people out there asking that question unfortunately i think you did answer the question though i think if if there, uh, there are any people out there who really are overwhelmed? They should seek support. That that would be yeah. My I think advice, seeking yeah. support in a confidential uh, way from a disinterested person who has the correct and relevant experience to yes. to counsel you is very important. You know, yeah. there are fortunately the nature of the arts. There is 
there's always a, a certain in any in any genre and any medium there's always a certain divide and conquer um energy out there and uh, the people around you are not necessarily people who know how to or want to give you the best advice so exactly. chat, chatting it through with someone who uh, is disinterested in the best sense yeah oh see see even that like even those last three minutes where you just said well, a bit of a micro masterclass isn't it isn't it even that could result in an enormous form of clarity for someone who d- wouldn't even know where to start with some of the questions we addressed um, i also feel in the current um, ecosystem I, I almost ask myself if trying to build a career as an artist um, without support is even even negotiable anymore I, i wouldn't recommend to anyone to kind of try and build a career completely on your own the way i tried 20 years back yeah. um, there is no way i would do it if i were if i were 20 today i wouldn't <coughs> ever even try to attempt anything remotely similar without having some form of a team support and um, yeah coaching yeah, excuse me support yeah i think a team uh, i mean in terms of inspiration to bounce off each other but yeah a team in terms of support um coaching knowing you le- your rights you know having it sort of um a legal um backup in place um you know knowing what you're signing away and what you're not confidence uh people who can't who understand who can kind of talk you through the emotional side of how to balance what is a very strange working life with you yeah. know because you're working with other people are partying Mm-hmm. Uh, to take care of your health as an artist because you know if you lose your body that's it oh yeah you can't replace that mach- machinery and you're not going to want to stop if you love it you're not going to want to stop when you're 50 or you're 70 as as older artists are proving absolutely so you need to take care of that while you're young and you think you're invincible but of course you're not um mm. coping with the, with the psychological elements of uh, you know working alone in on things that people have no vision for which only you understand at mm. the beginning of that creative process exactly. and how to cope with that you you need support and you need people who understand around you with all those um sorts of things finding your brand finding your style finding your audience what's happened in the last 30 40 years is that where artists you used to have a manager who actually managed record companies that actually promoted you tour support financials tour support you know record sales that actually amounted to something in terms of you know you think of the of the profit margins on physical product as opposed to streaming and download all that weight has been now been put on the artists at a time when we have yeah. fewer and fewer curators and mm. large and large swathes of work being created it's much harder to get noticed so well said and i think what is happening um used to happen not at all in the asian world where people were were um divided into sort of rival camps is that mm-hmm. uh people you know are helping each other out collaboration yeah well not just that but rec- recommending them and helping them move forward in their careers and i think that is the the job of more um established artists where possible to do that um and you see it in the comedy world all the time i mean you see um Eddie Izzard's friendship with Trevor Noah before he went really huge on the on the Today Show. Um, mm-hmm. Whoopi Goldberg and Billy Crystal 
you know, they were really good. Actually, there were three of them, Billy Crystal and two others, like really huge household names, who early on in her comedy career helped her along and starred alongside her with certain things like award ceremonies and things like that, and just helped to lift her out of an alternative scene into being thought of as mainstream because she was standing up there with mainstream figures and she was being championed. Hmm. And when you think about how few black female comics they were of that era you can see how important that um that help is and so yeah getting that help and getting that support and getting people to uh move you on in your career and and vice versa if you are someone in a privileged position reaching down and helping the next generation get to that next stage i couldn't have said it better seems like a fantastic note to taper off on thank you sheila you've no other burning question that's all right you've no other burning question you're um thinking, I, I had one it's it's really yeah. in your face <laughs> i could <laughs> it's it's do you think world music is racist and if so can you what would you suggest as an alternative <laughs> it was i was almost in two minds as to if i should read this one out <laughs> i like the i like the salty ones as they say in america <laughs> Like the sort of it was, yeah. It's funny. I had the vice president of the of the German Music Council on yesterday, who leads, um, uh, who kind of made history in German music education because it, it was the first time we're cutting edge music education and the public sector in Germany came together. And they recently they worked really hard to open their finally after years of uh, bureaucracy and putting in the work their world music department. And by the time it opened, this whole controversy of world music <laughs> as a term, it's like oh man, some. some Sometimes you just can't win. So, Sheila, do you think world music is a racist <laughs> term? And if yes, what do you think is a better alternative? Um, yes, I think it's racist. Uh, I've always thought it was racist. I've always thought it was a form of othering. Okay. Because I experienced what was there before that. Now, it's not that what I experienced before that was not racist, but it was not racist in the same way. Mm. You know, Monsoon's demise happened largely because Fanningham didn't know what to do with us. And when our second um, single wasn't as big a hit as the first, they panicked and told us to drop the Indian influence, which was ridiculous because we were formed around the Indian influence. You know, it was. Mm -hmm. But I think it's because they, at that time, as all cultural appropriators do, saw saw Indian influence as a costume to be donned and taken off, or a, like a flavour, and they wanted oh, to go back yeah. to normal cooking. Mm. So it's not that nothing racist happened, mm -hmm. you know. And we talked before about the exoticization of, you know, especially me as a 16-year-old yeah. uh, woman. Um, but I think to, and I can understand from a marketing point of view why, why people wanted to feature music that wasn't necessarily destined for the charts in a category where people would know where to find it kind of thing. But it's gone on and on and on, and the, the general effect is to um, other that music. And what I mean by other that music is, you know, when you're a suicidal teen, for instance, and you listen to... Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. Mm. You know, in fact, it was written for a suicidal team. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we all know that feeling really down, something terrible has happened, a close friend has died or something really. And, we, and we're in that down place. The singer speaks for us through that vocal. Yeah, so true. He expresses our distress. He understands the place we're in. That's when I say our music, as I've been saying all the way through in bits and 
pieces through this interview. When I say our music, that's what I mean. The mainstream's notion that the lead vocal expresses their heart for them. That is what mainstream music is meant to do. And when a music does that, when any song does that, it's generally a massive hit. Angels, you think of Angels by Robbie Williams getting played ad infinitum for the last 20 years at every funeral. Mm. It expresses the collect, and unfortunately I've picked two grief examples, but Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody did the same in the summer of 87, you know, expressed the joy, the joy of a summer and being, you know, maybe being at a festival, being on the, on the dance floor in Ibiza or being, being on the dance floor somewhere mm-hmm. or at the school disco, you know, the joy of that. And um, by categorising something as world music and talking about it in incredibly worthy anthropological terms, which certainly happened at the beginning, mm. whereas this, you know, when I first went on stage, I refused to say anything between the numbers, which I think was probably a mistake, but I was just reacting against the fact that, so I'd sit, that people didn't, wouldn't know where I, whether I spoke English or not, because I'd just sit there and sing. I wouldn't introduce any of the tracks. Wow. I wouldn't tell them the name of the track. I wouldn't tell them the name of the album. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I just open my mouth and sing. That's pretty badass, though. Bit of, bit of applause, then more singing, you know. And the reason for that was I was just reacting against these sort of oh, worthy arts council-funded performances of Bharatanatyam or something where you, the, the dancer would have to stand mm. at a mic and spend mm. 10 minutes explaining that this was about Krishna when he did such and such. I so feel you. And then it becomes, well, like every... Every Bharatanatyam singer is dancing, you know, is dancing the same themes and not distinguishing between them kind of thing, mm-hmm. not seeing individuals for their art. Mm-hmm. And I, and there was this incredibly anthropological, the, the, the more obscure your music was, the harder it was to get to almost geographically, um, the, the, you know, the more exciting it was. Not because people actually enjoyed it or felt a visceral connection to it, not because they felt the shared humanity, but because... Um, you know, I can't go up halfway halfway up a mountain to hear a goat herd sing, you know, his song from Madagascar or wherever. I don't know if Madagascar has mountains even. <laughs> so I was just reacting to that and I refused to introduce anything and tell anybody anything about the songs. I think it's brilliant. Because my whole thing was you're an audience, you're human beings, you've got hearts, you either feel it or you don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to justify it. I'm going to tell you what to feel. I'm going to tell you you ought to like this or it's incredibly skillful or this is the tradition it comes from. I'm not going to give you any hooks. You either feel it with your heart or you don't. And and that was the othering, I think, that took place. And the other form of othering was the way that the charts were compiled. And I mean, I'm going back 10, 20 years now, but I think in principle, there's still some truth to this, which is I went on National Public Radio in uh, the East Coast of America in 2001. And they were lovely. And they did this 20 minute beautifully edited together with some of the music I was promoting This Sentence is True, which is my last studio album. Mm. And um, the trilogy that's being reissued, the Real World Trilogy, had sold incredibly well. I was, uh, for the early 90s, I was their biggest selling artist in America, and I got rave reviews for Weaving Man Sisters' voices. They just got it. They got the sort of fusion. I remember. The fusion within a single vocal line. They just got it. Yeah. So um, they put together this thing, and it was a nice interview, and there were big swathes of music and everything. I was talking about the sentence is true. And for that day, I outsold Madonna on amazon.com wow i did not know that just for one day which is you know 
it's not a huge, you know, if I could have sold her out, sold her every day, that would mean, right? <laughs> you know, um, but I knew that the chart would not reflect that because I was being counted for a different chart. Interesting. I was being counted for the World Music Billboard chart. Mm. Yeah. So there is no apples with apples. Yeah. There you go. On something as simple as album sales, which at that point was physical media. S- something as simple as I sell an album, you sell an album. That Those two were not being compared. Do you think that's changed in today's musical um, music industry's landscape with all the focus on niching down and finding your audience and just not trying to join the madness and with micro-marketing? I, I can't talk about the structure of the music business and how charts are compiled because I haven't been paying attention. Yeah. But I think we are yet to, in Asian music, we're yet to, in the UK and the US, we're yet to kind of make that leap. It isn't really about whether I outsell Sheeran or Stormzy. Yeah. It's more about when I sing to you, Josephine blogs down the pub, mm-hmm. who's not necessarily heard anything like me before. Mm. Does my voice speak your heart? Yeah, I'm with you. Are you going to open? And the thing is, it's an opening process. Yeah. Are you going to hear the Indian inflections in my voice or the other, various other, you know, like percussion or or, or techniques that you're not familiar with? Are you going to hear that and close off the doors to your emotion? Mm. Are you going to think, oh, should like this? This is very virtuoso. Are you going to listen with your head? Or are you going to open the doors to your heart? Boom. We haven't made that leap just yet. We haven't made it. I think we will make it. There was a time in the 30s where, you know, around the time of Elvis's early recordings, where in the States, I mean, of course, there was Jim Crow and everything was physically segregated, but there was what was known as black music. Mm-hmm. And there were black artists who were making some spectacular recordings spectacular vocals their music would not be played on or be bought by the majority white population because it was black music huh interesting and one of the reasons that elvis caused such a scandal was because his influences were so black mm-hmm. and what you had was in the 30s and 40s you'd have this amazing track hit in its own community recorded by a black artist and then you'd have a white artist come along and do a very watered down bland version of it and it would sell millions to white people yeah because there was that closure we are not like black people this is not our music we're not going to listen to it and in their case it was more overtly a more overtly closed door Mm. but it broke through eventually and then, of course, you get, you know, the huge sort of everybody listens, listening to R&B in the, in, and blue, you know, in, the, in um, the old blues artists in the, in the early 60s. You know, and, and now anybody, you go down to the local boat club in Somerset and there are all white guys playing the blues. Mm-hmm. Maybe in 60, 70 years we'll have the same phenomenon with Asian music. But what there has to be is that there's no longer a separation between other music and our music. Asian music has to become our music. It's a tricky space, though, because at this point, I'll, I have friends, for example, who um, happen to be very um, 
dedicated uh, students of modalities like Indian classical music or uh, mm. really, uh, jazz musicians who really have dug deep and are, and are white, uh, they face a lot of resistance from um, a certain demographic who insist they're culturally appropriating what they're doing too. Uh, so it is, there is that challenge as well. There always have been. I mean, the guy who did the sitar solo, One of Us Lonely, which is an absolutely brilliant there was a white guy called Cam Alford. Exactly. And he's still playing. Right. Yeah, I think the problem is that it's difficult to allow it's difficult to allow a dominant a member of a dominant population to learn and benefit from your own tradition when people of your own tradition are being locked out. Yeah. For me, that's the dead that's the standard of cultural appropriation. Yes, I agree. So for instance, in the early 80s. Uh, at Stringfellows, which was very, very famous uh, club where a lot of um, names were seen regularly. Saris were specifically banned. Whoa. You could not go in wearing a sari. No way. I did not know about this. This is absolute news to me. Yeah, saris were specifically banned. The lead singer of M, the year before I was on Top of the Pops, had this, uh, M had this single called Pop Music. She went on Top of the Pops, White Lady, with a sari on. And um, I bet you she, when she was in the charts, if she'd rocked up to Stringfellow, she'd have been allowed in. I bet you as well. Yeah, I agree. So I think it's laudable, and I don't think it's the form of the fault of people like jazz musicians who are learning the, the tradition. But I think it's very difficult not to resent them when, if an Asian person tries to become big in the jazz scene, or more commonly with pop music, actually, if if a classical musician tries to try or a fusing fusing musician tries to to break really big in the mainstream they will be locked out because they're asian i mean you listen to this sentence is true which my last studio album was referencing before and it doesn't sound particularly asian mm-hmm. it doesn't really sound asian at all yeah and it got lumped in with world music because You've got two routes as an Asian artist. We certainly did, you know, 20 years ago. You either become um, Sonia Maddell of Echo Belly or a Freddie Mercury of Queen, where you almost kind of pretend you're not Asian. You never use mm. any influences. You never use any reference. It's not exactly a secret, but you don't yeah. dress that way. You don't represent your community in any way. Mm. You don't talk about racism, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, you'll be accepted and you can go into the mainstream and you can make music that is ours. Yeah. In, the, in the way that I've defined it. Yeah. But the minute you use some of your own heritage, that's it. No matter what music you make after that, you're, you're, you're lobbed in the world music. Yeah. And those are the people that interview you. It's the same with a bone crying drone. There are Asian elements on a bone crying drone. I am drawing in Hindu chants and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a concept, it was in some circles, progressive circles, being called new music. Hmm. but there was a huge re- resistance for me to be taken seriously in that world because I wasn't a 40-year-old white guy when I made it. Yeah. I was a 30-year-old Asian woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, th- that that is the problem. It's that othering. It's being stuck in a box, and it's, it's pe- listeners not yet ready to open their hearts and say, does this vocal speak to me or not, or does this music speak to me or not? Speak for me, speak my heart. Yeah, you think we'd have been a little better at that by now, huh? 2023. Oh, humans are tribal. Yeah. It takes them a while. 
It, and also it takes them a while, I think, with, with rhythm and blues, you know, especially with, with blues, which is a less diluted form. It takes a while for people to understand the sort of the geography, the, the, the stylized language of the form. And only when the stylized language of the form becomes an automatic tongue that you speak or mm. an automatic ear that you have as a, as a listener, but it is almost like learning another language. It's only when you have an instinct for that 12-bar blues form that you can start to feel feel it in your bones, feel it viscerally, and then let it speak for you. Mm-hmm. So I think there's also an element of that. And the, and the Asian tradition is a hugely rich one. You know, there's so many aspects of the music to learn. I mean, there's two distinct classical and um, myriad folk forms. Oh, yeah. Which are all very different from each other. I mean, if you, mm. you, if you understand South Indian classical music, it doesn't mean you're going to understand North Indian classical music. Absolutely. Vice versa. So, you know, there is a lot to digest there um, for audiences. I would love... Sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's all right. Before they can really feel it as something that they instinctively understand and can speak for them. Yeah. Thank you, Sheila. I hope that uh, question was answered. It's it's a tricky one. It's, It's really... I've always been on the fence um, with regards to the terminology and this label of world music. It crept up on me. I hadn't realized for the longest time exactly what the connotations of it were. Uh, my primary upbringing has been very central European, and we we grew up in a in a. It, it was a very different brand of. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a very different dynamic we we, we grew up around because Germany had this post World War Two need to make things better and uh, and that was legit but there were just so many nuances which got completely bypassed in the process of this uh, entire we're gonna prove ourselves to be better that um, whole very very different well, so there isn't a huge south asian community in germany is there? there is now there it's it's um i mean but when you were growing up there wasn't no, no wasn't. so that's the one person in a hundred or 20 people in a hundred there you go well. which is bingo that which is why it resonated me uh, with, with me the way it did because i noticed how that's changing because germany has a new immigration policy now since, since 2007 and the doors are as wide open as they've ever been in history uh, I have not seen so many coloured people in Germany in my entire life. Mm. And I say that just as an observation, just to clarify to my audiences, uh, it is a completely different environment than the one I grew up in. I also notice, uh, and this doesn't affect me the way it would probably do a lot of others, because I've never identified as Indian per se. My heritage as a South Asian is also very hybrid, you know. But I do notice that a culture uh, which was looked upon as extremely refined and very <laughs> welcome in this country. You know, the, the connotations of Indian culture in Germany and in Europe was, okay, here's like, they used to call it hawke culture, high culture. It was, uh, for yeah. some reason, the connotations were very, very different. Uh, and I see that changing because uh, they're being yeah. <laughs> faced with the actual realities of India, <laughs> what actually goes on in India now. Well, look, that's uh, market capitalism, isn't it? There you isn't go. It? It's, exactly. it's scarcity culture. If there are only ten of something made, then mm-hmm. you know it cost uh, cost a fortune. You know you want one of those, and you'll be on a waiting list and chase chase it down. You know I don't know a mulberry bag or something exactly. that's a one off, and you and you'll you'll set your personal assistant on it and give them a, a budget of five hundred thousand pounds. If they're being churned out by the local uh, here, we have cheap cheap clothing schools like 
Primark and oh yeah, we do. It's the same there. Yeah. So if it, it's if it's being turned out by, and and that's no if if a, a rel- even if a relatively decent bag at a decent quality made of leather is being churned out by a mass producer then suddenly you're not going to be willing to pay 500,000 for it so it's the mm. it's the exotic that is a form of exoticization absolutely branding branding yeah. and and market scarcity oh, yeah. and you value what you value less what you have more of mm-hmm. that's partly it and then there, and then there is this fear about the change of status quo where any form of appreciation becomes comes with a, a backlash of a, a fear of assimilation of allowing that culture to change so whereas if there's you know 12 Asians in the city of Berlin and, and you go to a concert and you appreciate this high art form music mm-hmm. that's fine because your, your basic day-to-day your socialization your your culture isn't changed by it if there are 12,000 in berlin and then absorbing some of their culture changes the basic mm-hmm. produces a basic sea change in the, in the, you you get what i'm trying to say absolutely absolutely my my uh, my uncle uh, uh, the one who uh, lived in berlin during the 60s for example he was actually one of the first bilingual poets who wrote in german and um, and he was so celebrated in his circles at the time and that was the kind of like the ultimate representation of India in Germany that's how Germans love to see India as this uh, you know you just come and write us your poetry and uh, have us over for dinner to make us a curry (laughs) they loved it now you're just a guy who's either delivering pizza or doing your IT or your VA or I think, and they're like, okay, uh, it is it, it is very very interesting uh, slash amusing uh, South Asians taking over. Also, people, and this might be like a really <laughs> stupid thing to say, but there's also so many out there. Like people tend to forget that this is the second largest population out there in the world. So it's only natural when globalization happens that it's just going to get browner and browner. <laughs> well, you know, there is. then we come into the whole great replacement theory stuff go. that's exactly. going on in yeah. America. And, exactly. and actually, that is all fueled by the huge fear of the BRIC countries, particularly India and China, gaining economic dominance. Yeah, yeah. and it's a big one. And I can say as someone who works, um, I work in India too every now and then as a guest lecturer or artist. And I, I can tell you that, you know, not all of it is, not all of it is great. You know, there there's a lot of stuff I struggle to come to terms with. The manner in which the economy uh, works or uh, the dynamics behind the whole, the work, the ethic of it all. There's, there's, there's a lot to be on the fence about. Let's just keep it at that. You mean in India? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I constantly find myself oscillating between being happy to see the scales kind of being balanced out in a certain degree from a historical, sociocultural aspect, uh, point of view. But the actual reality behind it is, you know, is a whole different story. I'm not sure. <laughs> it, it's, uh, you know. I think India suffers from that um, colonial legacy. It's oh, yeah. not going to have been worked out in 50, 70 years. And, um, or 75 years, whatever it is, um, you know, there is a huge amount in terms of infrastructure and, and cultural uh, norms set in that mm. colonial era. Um, I was reading of a study 
about a year ago, which said, you know, Asians have this high incidence of diabetes because we have mm -hmm. fewer fat cells in the body. And the, when you have fewer fat cells in the body, you're, they're more likely to swell and become insulin sensitive. Right. Um, there was this, uh, fortunately, I can't remember the na name of the guy who, who um, made this study, but um, he postulated that the there were 30 famines in in India under the British. You know, these were, in, think of like the Bengal famine and how many people died, millions of people died mm. because their grain was being shipped to uh, help in the war effort, was being shipped to Europe to help in the, to England to be helped in the war effort by Churchill who couldn't stand uh, Indians. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he uh, postulated, uh, and I think the study um, uh, went towards proving that the reason the diaspora has a tendency to diabetes is because their bodies were over a generation starvation condition. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm aware of the study, yes. By this, by these 30 famines. And, um, you know, you you can't just 75 years throw it off. No, not at all. You can't throw all that horrible thinking off. You can't throw off the lack of emotional and cultural development that you would have had mm -hmm. as a successful economy. Because we know that when uh, when England colonised India, it had 23% of world GDP. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that anymore. That's proof of historical amnesia. People don't yeah. know what the economy was back in the day. No, because they've been fed the story of the white man's burden. You know, we took over exactly. this country, yeah. for, you know, as a favour. Mm-hmm to civilize these people, these people who just happen to have 23% of the world's GDP and had 4% at the time. 23%, yeah. 4% yeah. in 1947. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to see how that table's turning. It's interesting to see a brown man as, uh, a brown uh, South Asian man as the UK's uh, prime minister. That, that, oh, <laughs> which, again, is a whole different discussion. I'm probably not even qualified to even get into at this point. So... Yeah, you don't, uh, people really, there's an enormously relevant fact people tend to bypass in this whole racism dialogue, which is you don't have to be white to be racist. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's the kind of thing that's so easy to, and I say that as someone who's faced that, I mean, the worst racism I've faced has actually not been from white people. Mm. It's been the 10 years I spent in India. What is discouraging is, you know, um, uh, you know leaving aside colorism and casteism and all that. Mm -hmm. We have representation in a country where we have struggled with representation, but we have it from the worst possible people who are in power, yeah. have the ultimate power, who's setting, um, you know, immigration rules, uh, who are managing the country and who are spouting the most hateful um, rhetoric mm. against uh, people of colour yeah. and uh, the most hateful um, policies against, uh, which are covertly aimed at people of colour yeah. um, and also white people from European, Eastern, uh, European, uh, Eastern European countries who um, are, are, I think, subconsciously categorised as lesser white people. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And I think it, it totally, it just encourages all those jingoistic racist people to come out and, you know, well, if this person with a brown face does it, then it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's culturally okay. And that is the tragedy. Yeah. 
Yours are the shoulders our careers have been built on, or at least our artistic uh, profiles have been built on. I'm glad to have had the chance to kind of contribute in some way to... Uh, Getting the word out there, yes. Yeah, putting Thank the word you. out there. I'm very uh, glad you have. But also, you know, uh, promotion can be a slog and uh, this isn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I actually work for a, a music marketing company now in Brooklyn. A free will. I, I want to kind of take the beast by its horns and, you know, get a proper mm. hang for it. I'm getting a lot more hands-on with the back end of this promotional thing. So I know exactly what you mean. So it just uh, helps yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, do you find it's hard to get... No, I mean, there's so much out there now and there's so many outlets. Uh, yeah. Music music reviewing, I mean, doesn't happen in the way that it did no, before. No, not at all. No, so not print all. media and, Nothing. you know, um, I don't... You know, getting noticed is, is so... It's such a different game now. Everything's changed. And I have the enormous honour to be working with someone who's been in the business for 25 years she's a bit of a legend in the independent music industry um, circles uh, Ariel Hyatt uh, I'm sure she wouldn't be she wouldn't mind me calling she was a guest on my podcast too some time back she talks about how uh, back in the day a promo package was actually actually was like a package uh, and I keep saying this this is my anecdote I keep telling people it was actually like she'd have a day of the week where she'd go select the correct the kind of writing wrapping paper that she felt would suit the person she's pitching to it was actually a package yeah, it's like it's like youngsters who see that floppy disk um, <laughs> yeah. icon for the save, oh, and, yeah, they, and, and they see they, a real floppy is. disk, and they say, "Oh, is that taken from the save icon?" No, darling, it's the other way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but Ariel's badass. She she's navigated all the changes through the industry to the point where she's actually on on top of AI and stuff. She's doing AI workshops as well. So she's she's uh, like a very inspiring exception. She's also like super switched on. But it's been yeah. I can completely um, second what you just said. Like it's the game's changed so much and it's becoming increasing. But do you think it's algorithms and word of mouth now? Is that is that the game? <sighs> that's a good question i hesitate in answering that because yes and no i think it's become so ridiculous that we're close to a point where artists are going to be forced to kind of find at least a counterbalance to that algorithm Ariel, for example, talks about how artists should start working on what she calls micro marketing which is basically old school community building relationship building you know share stuff you know you know share tape share your tapes with your mates so that's just been giving the new word now micro marketing you know uh, instead of like going out to the record shop making friends you get on lunch club and try and meet people you like and try and get them onto your mailing list and market so you actually have like a one-on-one -on -one direct relationship with the people you want to uh, reach out to with your music and presumably build that with shows as well yeah there, uh, as well and, um, and and she's also a big proponent of what she calls um, hyphenated artists uh, that's something I'm on the fence on I struggle to really um, sorry what is that high, hyphenated so it's you know just playing music is not going to be enough anymore oh I see dodging multiple hats and uh so well like being a video artist as well and yeah uh, yeah because music isn't a it's it's not a central artistic practice anymore it's it's more uh, of something that usually accompanies uh, a more central theme if it 
video games or dance or movies. Or, it's just not a central, unless you're a classical musician who's appointed by a philharmonic orchestra or something, you know, it's, it, the, the entire role of music in society seems to have changed. But I struggle with the hyphenated thing, which is ironic because I'm hyphenated by default. I've always written. I run a freelance writing business. I podcast and do these things. But I never actually thought of it as like a something... I really have to do as part of my job. I just did them anyway. And apparently it's been labeled as hyphenated now. We've been out for over two hours, Sheila. Yeah, I think we'd yeah. have to stop. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to respect your time too as well. but uh, That's okay. I, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. you you're, we have a proper conversation interesting concept. oh yeah it, it's it's a it's an absolute highlight um I've, i listened back to our first episode so many times i mean full disclosure uh, at the time i, re- I realize now uh, a lot of the topics you addressed and the manner in which you addressed them were i realize now they might have even gone over um, my head so it's been the kind of um encyclopedic input for me where i just keep listening back to it's like every time i listen back to that conversation there's something new i learn you know that's very sweet thank you i'm just being absolutely honest so thank you gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out here.